Blueberry growers are skilled in finding ways to maximize production while also working in harmony with nature, but sometimes that can be a real challenge, such as when birds are eating the crop. We could easily lose 10 or 15% of a crop in a field if we didn't do anything with birds. And probably on top of that, a lot of times, some birds will come in and just take a bite out of the blueberry and then it hangs there and then it comes into the packing shed and you got to make sure you're sorting it out so it could affect your uh, the quality of your pack too. Today we hear from both a grower and a scientist who discusses strategies for managing birds in our blueberry fields. This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Now, we've heard on some of our crop report calls that birds have been especially bad this year and in some of our blueberry fields around the country. So we thought we'd do an episode on bird management. Joining us today, we have Larry Bodke, blueberry grower and partner at Cornerstone Ag in Michigan, and Dr. Catherine Lindell, associate professor at the Center for Global Change and Earth Observations and the Department of Integrative Biology at Michigan State University. Catherine's work focuses on avian behavior and ecology in managed ecosystems. Catherine and Larry, welcome to the business of blueberries. Thanks for having us, Casey. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, we really appreciate your time today to talk a little bit about this. But Larry, let's start with you. Uh, I thought you could talk a little bit about your operation there in Michigan. Yeah, so our operation in Michigan started in 1969 with my folks and so we've been in the business for a little bit over 50 years. And uh, we also partner with Brookside Farms, another Michigan farm here in Pan American Berry Growers out in uh, the Salem area of Oregon and uh, Mossy Rock, Washington. And um, we've been doing that now for about 17 years. And it's really interesting uh, just over the years, the different bird pressure that we get here in Michigan compared to out west and the different ways that we combat it. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about that history. Uh, obviously, you know, west versus there in Michigan would be interesting to hear some of those bird challenges you've experienced. And also, I just think, you know, for someone like myself who doesn't have the tenure you do in watching these birds pick off the fields, but, you know, do the new varieties matter to them in the way that uh, they seem to want to harvest before you get out there? So I think it'd be fun for us to just kind of dialogue a little bit here about what that experience has been and if you can give us any insights on how do you address those challenges? So I can remember we had these little air cannons that were on timers, and I think they were hooked to little LP tanks that would make the sound of a shotgun occasionally. And so that would scare the birds away. And, you know, those things help with taking care of big flocks of birds. You still have the individual birds and, you know, 
you're still going to have some pressure from birds, really, no matter what you do. And it's just a matter of keeping the, the big flocks of birds out of the fields. And, you know, over the years, uh, we've tried different things besides the cannons, bird alarms that would make different sounds that, you know, I think we're supposed to mimic the sound of a predator bird. And it just seemed like, yeah, that, that worked for a while. And then the birds got used to that. One of the ways to control birds that we never tried in our operation, but I had heard about was uh, lasers where you have these uh, machines that shine a laser over the top of the field and it interrupts the patterns of the birds coming into the field because they don't like the way the laser hits their eyes or, or whatever it might be. I'm, like I said, we never tried that one. And probably the most successful one, we, we haven't used it here in Michigan, but we have out west extensively. The most successful, but also the most expensive, is uh, just to hire a falconer and have them bring in falcons to fly around the field and chase the birds away. So that's been real successful for us out west. We did some work with Catherine where we put up nesting sites or tried to build nesting areas for uh, kestrels here in Michigan. And we did attract some kestrels. It just seemed like maybe their nesting and the time they came into the field didn't coincide real well with when our crop was getting ripe. And, and again, our, our bird pressure here in Michigan isn't nearly what it what it's like out west or even what it used to be in the past. So Yeah. Well and I know out there in Oregon during the Oregon Blueberry Commission conference this year, the Falconeers are part of the kind of vendor group out there because of I think what you're describing is the success they have. And I'd be interesting to hear a little bit more from your perspective on the ROI there because uh, maybe you can give a sense of what on average, you believe, you know, whether it's Michigan or Washington or generally speaking, the impacts birds can have on blueberry growing operations. So, you know, what then does justify at what level the techniques or tactics up into including a falconeer that you're willing to try in order to protect that crop from, you know, economic harm? So maybe you could give some perspective on how you look at that. Yeah. So um, hiring a falconeer is pretty expensive, but you know, when you're protecting a crop that's uh, a fresh market crop that you're going to produce uh, 10 or 12 or 15 ton to the acre, there's a lot better economics in that than here in Michigan where we might get uh, four or five ton to the acre and you just really can't afford to spend that much money protecting the crop that's there. And like I say, the bird pressure here in Michigan hasn't been what it's been out west. And, you know, we can we could easily lose 10 or 15 percent of a crop in a field if we didn't do anything with birds. And probably on top of that, a lot of times some birds will come in and grab a blueberry and pull it off the bush and fly away with it. Other birds come in and just take a bite out of the blueberry, and then it hangs there, and then it comes into the packing shed, and you got to make sure you're sorting it out. So it not only affects your yields, but it could affect your uh, the quality of your pack, too. So 
We do have a little bit of natural uh, predatory birds, red-tailed hawks around here that occasionally will, you know, be flying around fields and keeping the bird populations, other bird populations down. So that's that's always a good thing when it's just happening as nature lets it happen. So we put up these nesting shelters, nesting houses on a number of our farms and to some success, they, we, we attracted kestrels in and um, the timing didn't quite work out right. The kestrels seemed to come into the to the uh, nesting area a little later than what would have helped us the most in the uh, blueberry field. So I'll, I'll let her speak to a little bit more of the scientific results of that and what that meant. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, Catherine, if you could just talk a little bit more, I mean, specifically about your interest in this area, and then, you know, I'd be interested to know what led you to blueberries and, and helping us address this challenge that all, all of our growers, so the audience, you know, that's listening from everywhere. Uh, we've got a, a really a worldwide audience that I know face these pressures. So, you know, your area interested in, in this and then how what led you to blueberries, it'd be great to hear. Okay. So, yeah, I started my career actually working with tropical birds, but then through Michigan State University Extension, one of my colleagues told me, well, we got a lot of bird problems here. And so we could probably use some help. And so we wrote some proposals and got some funding. So blueberries were one of the major crops we looked at. We also looked at sweet cherries, grapes, and honey crisp apples, and um, did them in several parts of the country. Definitely, we worked with an economist, Stephanie Schwiff, out at the USDA Wildlife Research Center. And, you know, that economic impact is certainly important. Like growers in five states were estimating between 4 and 18% of the crop went to the birds. So definitely a, a big issue. So yeah, we tried a number of different techniques and the natural predators is a very exciting thing, but we did find in our work that it varies greatly from one place to another, whether you're going to be able to attract the kestrels that you want that do scare away other birds and to what degree you're going to get these pest birds in the nest boxes, these European starlings. So we found out, for example, down in blueberry country in Michigan, down in um, Western Michigan, we had a lot of starling activity in the boxes. Kestrels were in about 30% of them. But up north, where we did our work in sweet cherries, you know, we got about 80 to 90% occupancy with kestrels, very few starlings. So that's one thing about using the natural predators is it's really going to depend on your geography, what results you get. So that's something you just have to try out if you're interested in doing that. Yeah. And, and interesting, you know, I know Larry was talking a bit earlier about, you know, how to attract those predatory birds, but that there's a whole industry out there that, you know, the falconeers who are being paid to help, you know, protect entire regions. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what other bird problems you're seeing from growers, you know, what species of birds that you see as the biggest culprits? Certainly it varies a little bit from place to place, but there's certainly American robins are a big one. Cedar waxwings. People don't notice them quite as much, though actually up in northern Michigan, they call them the cherry birds. So I guess they do have a reputation. Grackles, which are big black birds, you know, and then there's some you might know a little bit more like Baltimore Orioles. They're not quite as important as things like the American robins, the, the waxwings, grackles, 
Starlings in some cases, I mean, the starlings can really be an issue in blueberries because especially it could be problematic if you're near dairy farms because they, you know, attract starlings with the grain. And then if they go feed in a crop like blueberries, they could be bringing contaminants too because they were close to the livestock. So those can be a real issue, the starlings as well. Well, and I want to I want to talk a little bit further in the research on what's happening in this area and maybe some of the best practices you both could recommend. Uh, but before we do, let's take a quick break here for our crop report. The North American season is well underway. And as we get further into the summer period, we're welcoming more and more regions onto this report. So here once again is your blueberry crop report. Yes, it's time for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Matt McCree in New Jersey, Rex Schultz in Michigan, Doug Kramer in Oregon, Brian Sakuma in Washington, and Nestor Vega in Mexico. This was recorded on July 20th, 2022. All right, this is Matt McCree reporting for New Jersey. Uh, we're now on a heat wave here with temperatures in the mid to upper 90s, possibly around 100 degrees over the weekend. It's been very dry with only a few spotty showers in the past week. Labor right now, the majority has left the area to go pick Michigan. Uh, most farms in the area are now finished up. The few larger farms that are here in Hamilton are still machine picking, blue crop for process. LA variety has just begun first round of harvest, but labor is minimal. So we'll see how long we can stay in fresh pick for that. Looks like the first round will most likely be by hand, and then maybe the machines will come in and clean up within the next 10 days. But harvest, for the most part, will be wrapped up in our area by the 1st of August, and that's all I have to report. Hello, everyone. This is Rex Schultz from Michigan. Uh, this week so far, uh, we finally are getting some days in the southern counties where we're um, getting to pick all day long. We've had rain interruptions, not a large amount of rain, but enough to keep us out of the fields early on or a couple of rain out days uh, in the northern counties. They're experiencing less water than we are, and they're pretty dry up there, so they've been running a lot of irrigation. Uh, so far through this week, though, production has really ramped up. We're in our blue crop now after a light duke harvest. Blue crops are looking real nice, good volumes, good quality. Right now, it's great picking, and uh, we're going to probably be down in the southern counties be picking probably through the middle of next week on our first round of blue crop, and then we'll be going into the second round. Elliots are looking real strong for late season. Uh, a lot of volume there is going to happen. Uh, we've had uh, through the week uh, 1.2 million pounds that have been shipped out so far, so things are really ramping up. Picking is good. Labor this year is real good in Michigan. And with that, that's our crop report for this week. This is Doug Kramer from Oregon. Picking's going well here in the state. Most growers are finished or getting finished with their first pick of Dukes. Some growers to the south are getting finished up on their second pick of Dukes. And the mid-seasons are right around the corner. A few guys have just started the mid-seasons, the Draper, the Blue Ribbon, and others. So things are going really good on the picking end. We have high populations of the SWD fly. 
weather has been, it was ideal last week. This week, it's a, it's a little warmer. And they're talking up into the 90s for next week. So overall, things are going really good. And we'll keep them rolling. Hi, this is Brian Sakuma from the state of Washington. Eastern Washington is getting through most of their dukes. They're getting to the end of the first round, starting with maybe some first pick uh, drapers starting in the next few days. Weather has been fairly warm, probably in the 90s. Western Washington has been a lot cooler. Most of the harvest on the west side has not started. People are looking to probably start this weekend and the first part of next week with Duke. And this has been probably one of the largest or latest crops that we've ever had due to the wet and cool spring. We've been having mild temperatures. It's supposed to warm up, but for us, warming up means, you know, the high 70s, mid 80s. That's the crop report from Washington. I'm just to anticipate the report from Mexico. Okay, this week Mexico exported a total of 2,060 pounds to the United States and 269,000 pounds of, of fresh blueberry to the world. From this volume, uh, 20,000 pounds was organic blueberry, what is around 7.7% of the total volume. The exportation volume is 30% down from weight 27. In France, Mexico exported 66,172 pounds, representing around 2.5% of the US imports of frozen on weight 28. For the food system, Mexico has exported 172 million. 911,000.9 pounds. It means around 20% higher than the last seasons. The temperature is hot, it's hot in most part, most part of the country. This week marked the end of the 2021-2022 season for Mexico. However, production continues, but very low, with very low volumes, and that's why they are poor for Mexico. Well, thank you so much to our busy growers and colleagues who take the time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry. We've added a lot more features to this dashboard, including USDA shipping price and movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales report, and much, much more. So make sure you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. So let's get back to our featured conversation with Larry Bodke and Dr. Catherine Lindell. Catherine, could you share just a little bit more uh, generally about what types of questions you and other researchers you find that are seeking answers when it comes to bird management in crops like blueberries? Well, we're really interested in figuring out which types of techniques are effective in deterring bird damage. And it's a tricky problem because birds are very mobile. So if you scare them away from your field, and all the growers know this, they'll probably go to your neighbor's field. <laughs> so it would be helpful to install some kinds of, of landscape level approaches if you can get some kind of cooperation like that. So 
mainly it's which techniques are effective and are there any downsides to particular techniques too. So for example, we did investigate whether using the inflatable tube men that flap around that you see at used car dealerships and that kind of thing, whether they would be effective. And we we noticed a trend in that there was less bird damage in fields where we had these inflatable tube men, though it didn't quite reach the level of statistical significance. And I would say you need to really manage those. So for example, if you move them around and if you set them to different speeds, you know, you have to kind of put a lot of effort into managing them. And then I felt some of our growers felt that they were pretty effective. So those are the kind of main types of things. What techniques are out there? You know, drones is a coming technique, but there's a lot we have to figure out there. So I have some colleagues, for example, that are looking at what shapes of drones and what types of drones seem to instill more fear in the birds. And so a, a paper was published a couple of years ago showing that, for example, copter type drones, like with rotors, don't elicit much of a response in birds, whereas drones that are more like a predator look like a predator. You know, the, the birds are more vigilant. They take more time to return to their foraging. They're more alert. So those are the types of questions that we need to get at. What are the details about these techniques that will make them more effective in deterring birds? Well, and I mean, in the area of drone, it's not just aerial drones. I've heard techniques of on-ground drones that go, are deployed to that part of the field. And, and I haven't seen much of this. I actually haven't seen one in real life, but just the idea that it's not always by air. They can, the drones can show up on the ground and I don't know what they do, make noise or, but maybe you have some sense of, you know, what are these different techniques with these different technologies that are coming from a bunch of different directions for these reasons that are the variables you're describing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because the same study that looked at the response of the blackbirds to drones, they also looked at whether coming straight on towards the birds or using the drone from above elicited different responses. And they found that going head on to the birds was certainly more effective than coming down from above. Like the birds didn't seem to be that concerned with things coming down from above. So it's it's interesting that you mention that because, yeah, you have to look at the approach of the drones. I mean, one thing that would be really great to figure out there is if, you know, ideally what you'd like is like some kind of battery pack that the drone can sit on and some kind of sensor that it can sense the birds coming into the field, get itself off its little pod, go scare them away and then come back and get itself on the pod. So, you know, at this point, the drone technology, it takes humans to run it Different states have different regulations as to who can operate drones. And so, you know, the regulations, along with figuring out those details of how to get it, so it's that it's efficient and also effective at deterring birds. Those are some important questions. Yeah. Well, and and the automation of that, because I I can't imagine Larry's out there with his uh, joystick trying to figure out how to chase every single bird away from his field. And every grower is going to face that issue of, of not wanting to feel like they're the the uh, pilot of all this new technology. So it's got to be, it's got to be really easy to plug in. And like you're saying, you know, drones are just one of those things that, you know, from an ecological perspective, people are wanting to consider to, you know, this kind of coexisting cohabitate with nature. But, you know, what other things are you seeing technology wise that you think is futuristic? You know, I know you talked a little bit about being able to see the drones launch from pods that are sensing the crop, but anything else that you're seeing out there that would help with bird abatement? 
Well, so one of my colleagues at the University of Rhode Island, Rebecca Brown, she's doing some work there called laser scarecrows. Essentially, they're these moving lasers, and they've had some luck with sweet corn. It seems like the results are more not clear yet for blueberries, but they're working on that. And they have a system that people can put together themselves. So, you know, farmers tend to be very kind of handy. So, you know, they have this kind of kit and you can put it together. It's essentially a bucket and it has a a drone, a green light that moves back and forth over the crop and it's powered by solar. So you don't need a generator out there. You know, in the past, lasers, they have been shown to be effective at deterring birds in low light situations, like at night. And it seems to vary by species, like Canada geese seem to be scared. Some others don't seem to be scared. So again, we need those details. You know, can it really deter birds during the daytime? Which ones can it deter? And, you know, the technology, it's, it's simple, but if it could be effective, I think that's something to look at in the future. Well, I was afraid to bring up scarecrows. I felt like that was going to be way back there in the uh, bird abatement strategy. But I know that name, laser scarecrow. It's really not a scarecrow. Oh, I mean, okay, okay. So it's really this <laughs> this beam of light that's moving back and forth in this bucket that has a window. So yeah, that's a little bit of a misnomer, maybe. The inflatable car lot sales guy is more like the scarecrow because he's up in the field just going like this. And part of the problem with that is having power to it. And like Catherine says, you have to move it around and the birds get used to different things. And so you have to change it up so that they go, oh, something's different here. I, I got to go find someplace else to feed. Yeah. Well, and without going all the way back to the old methods at which we would scare birds away. But I guess, you know, from your perspective, Larry, it's, it's got to be a little maddening, right? If all these different techniques, you know, aren't accomplishing the job and you're constantly looking at, you know, what else or what more can we do that, you know, isn't labor intensive. It doesn't have us having to, you know, move equipment around the field to try. But, you know, out here in California in particular, there's a lot of valuable wine grapes and you see, you know, tied to all the trellises, the very shiny tape that is, you know, flapping in the wind to help address, you know, I'm assuming the same thing, right? They're trying to scare birds off of the grapes. And but there's just so many different techniques. It's, you know, you just mentioned sweet corn. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any one thing that any, you know, in all the years of agriculture we've been able to land on as being the best thing. And of course, all the different varieties of birds. But is there a best management practice that, you know, you ascribe to, Larry, that you're like, out of all the years, you know, we always seem to come back to, X as the approach. Well, there's quite quite a few things there in there, Casey. I could say, you know, as farmers in our lifetime, we get maybe 50, maybe 60 chances at trying different things. When you think about the life of a farmer and the different seasons, and we've always been innovators. We've always been people who are open to new ideas and trying new things. And So, you know, you look at all these different ways of attempting to keep birds out of the field. And Catherine mentioned some of it. Some of the ways are going to work in some fields better than others. One of them that I didn't mention at the beginning that, you know, I know people have tried is netting. And, you know, on a commercial size, you can see the nightmare that would try to be unless you're just building trellises and maybe putting a big net over the top of a field, like uh, almost like if you were trying to grow hops or something. 
So, you know, it's, a, it's always uh, interesting for us to hear new ideas, try new things. I think I mentioned to you before the most successful that we've seen so far, which is also the most expensive, is uh, with the uh, falconers and keeping the birds out with a falconer going out and flying his falcons, you know, a couple times a day, three times a day. Morning and evening is generally when the pressure is the heaviest, and uh, so that's when they'll typically be out there. The falcons, the other thing that's nice about that is, you know, your residential neighbors really don't notice that you're doing anything, whereas some of the methods that I mentioned earlier with the uh, the cannons that we would use to sound like a shotgun or the bird alarms that would you know, have these loudspeakers out in the field making these predatory bird sounds. Lots of times you get calls from your neighbors saying, man, will you turn that thing off? It's driving me crazy. Well, and, and Catherine, maybe you've got some, from your perspective, what are the like, don't do's? What's your sense of that's not a technique that provides the results you're looking for? So best practices, but from your perspective, you know, don't practice. Well, I mean, best practices, one thing I think can be helpful is that we have found in a number of different situations that when you've got not much crop in an area, or if you're going to have a low yield year, you're going to feel it more. Like the percentage of crop that the birds take is going to be higher in low fruit contexts. So for example, if you're expecting a year, it's not going to be a high yield. It seems like from our research, going to take about the same amount of crop. So it's going to be a higher percentage when you don't have as much fruit out there. And so you're going to feel it more and you're also going to feel it more like on the edges or if you've got an isolated block. So one thing you can do is is try and plan ahead. And if you know it's going to be a low yield year, you might think you're, you're going to have to invest more in bird management because not only in a low yield year is there going to be a higher percentage that the birds take, but also in a high yield year, you know, any kind of bird deterrent is going to be kind of diluted because you have so much crop out there. It's going to be harder to really get anything to work because, you know, where are you going to place it and you've got enough fruit out there. So one thing is to plan ahead like that. Think about where and when you might need to invest a lot in bird management. And then thinking about, I don't know, the value of your crop, you know, like like Larry was saying, the netting it is effective, but it's a big investment. And so if you've got some really high value grapes, you know, it might be worth it to use netting. And I know like some people where they have organic blueberries that are really high value, they might use netting as well. So it's that cost benefit ratio you have to think about. In terms of what doesn't work, you know, some of the scaring things like, you know, having like a statue of a owl or a predatory bird, that's probably not going to do much to scare away the birds. Like like Larry said, they get used to it. They know it's around. You know, the flapping mylar strips, I, you know, I'm not sure how much they do, really. They might make you feel a little better. But the scaring techniques, unless you're really willing to invest, move them around, change things up, they are probably the least likely to, to get you some some help. We're going to take a quick break here for our Blueberry Boost. We'll be back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Engagement and Education, Amanda Griffin. Thanks, Casey. For this week's Blueberry Boost, let's talk about acknowledging your blueberry industry heroes this fall at the Blueberry Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. 
When you think about the greatest minds and biggest influencers in the blueberry industry, who comes to mind? Now that you're thinking of your heroes, let's talk about how you can acknowledge them. The North American Blueberry Council opened nominations for two prestigious awards. Now, through August 12th, we are accepting nominations for both the Duke Galetta Award and the Alex Weatherby Award. The Duke Galetta Award recognizes excellence in blueberry horticultural research. The award is named in honor of Duke Galetta of Atlantic Blueberry, an inaugural member of the NABC. Galetta was very involved in blueberry varietal development and worked with USDA plant breeders, allowing them to set up test plots on Atlantic blueberry land. Galetta had such an influence on the blueberry industry that the Duke variety is named after him. Nominees for the Duke Galetta Award have demonstrated leadership in research within the blueberry industry and have contributed to the blueberry industry development. Now, the Alex Weatherby Award recognizes outstanding contributions to the blueberry industry in marketing and promotion. Alex Weatherby was one of the NABC's founders and a blueberry marketer from New Jersey who was respected industry-wide for his passion in promoting blueberries. Weatherby was known for regularly saying yes to opportunities to promote the blueberry industry and donated significant time to the NABC Promotion Committee. Nominees for the Alex Weatherby Award have contributed to the awareness and market success of blueberries and have demonstrated leadership and innovation in efforts to promote the blueberry industry. Visit nabc.blueberry.org to nominate your industry hero today. We look forward to celebrating both honorees at the Blueberry Summit in Nashville, Tennessee this fall. This has been your weekly Blueberry Boost. Now, Casey, back to you. Thanks, Amanda. Now back to today's episode with Larry and Catherine. From a more general question, you know, what, what do you think blueberry growers can do to create more of a win-win for that natural ecosystem? Well, you have to assess, again, the costs and benefits. So we found for blueberry growers in Western Michigan, the costs of these nest boxes are pretty high and that you probably have to remove starling nests because a lot of starlings nest in them. You get some benefits if you get kestrels in. You know, perches can help somewhat. You know, so depending on what region you're in, you're going to have to think about whether the kestrel boxes are an effective tool. If it's going to take too much management, then you probably won't want to invest in them. You can also do things like put perches up. And that provides, we've seen cedar, you know, they're fruit eaters, but kestrels will use perches. Some of these other predatory birds will also use perches. So that would be kind of a low cost thing. You can put it, you know, at the end of a row or something, and that might bring some activity of predatory birds in as well. And then we also say too, like, it's a little tricky because if you maintain more natural vegetation, you'll often get a higher diversity of birds around your field. So you'll get some of those beneficial birds that eat insects you don't want, and you might provide some habitat for these predatory birds. The tricky thing is, of course, now with issues like spotted wing drosophila, you know, you, you get advice to like cut back some of that vegetation, particularly if it has fruit on it. So there's just lots of complexities here. I think, you know, going back to the principles of integrated pest management in terms of using a variety of different techniques. So one thing, do plan early you know, see what the year is going to be like. If it's going to be a low yield year, it might hurt you more. Think about what resources on your farm might attract birds. 
like, you know, if you have grain or if you have water sources, things of that nature that are going to draw birds in, you might want to see if you can um, reduce those. We have found that, for example, cables or wires over crops, we saw higher damage in honeycrisp apples. That's something you maybe can't you know, change, you know, unless you can change the location of your field. But so you want to reduce the resources for birds. You want to think ahead and think about your particular farm. And you also want to use a variety of different techniques. And, you know, that's going to be your best, your best strategy. And the more effort you put in it to it, the better. And also consider those cost benefit. You know, if you're a small grower and only have a couple of fields, you know, maybe it would be worth it for you to put netting in if you can afford it. I feel like in a way too, the small growers, it almost makes them more irritated because they they don't have all these fields where the birds are spread out, but they just see in these couple of fields, they have all this damage that goes on all the time. So those are some principles I would think about. Well, I appreciate that. And and Larry, for you, any advice for your fellow growers as they as they marshal on here in the season or future seasons? So, you know, you just have to be out in your fields, be aware of what kind of bird pressure you've got, the timing it hits. And then, you know, you just have to search out these different methods of uh, chasing birds away that works best for you, that's uh, affordable for you, that makes economic sense to you. And um, there's, you know, as Catherine and I have been talking about, there's lots of different uh, options out there. Well, that's good. Well, Larry and Catherine, I really appreciate the time today and, and certainly know that this is something that, you know, so many of our industry are challenged by. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to kind of spend a little time talking about a common issue. And obviously this season, we've heard some of the challenges from the fields there on bird pressure that they've faced and uh, just what an impact it can have overall. So I appreciate your guys' time today and thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank You're you. Welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be part of it. Well, that's it for episode 106. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. 